Hello and welcome to Not To Get Political, the podcast where we delve into the world of politics and hope to remain unscathed. Today I am joined by Femi, a political activist who rose to prominence during Brexit as a Remain campaigner. He has appeared on TV and written articles for various media outlets. His activism at the moment is centred around proportional representation. Femi, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure to be here. Um, first of all, how are you? How are things? Oh, I'm good. Uh, the state of the UK is awesome. Everything's going well. Um, so it's good to be here. How did you get into politics? What was the moment for you? Uh, I guess the moment was I was working in Brussels on human rights, um, especially the Gulf states of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. And I was watching the Tories basically praising the arms industry, which we were selling to selling bombs to Saudi Arabia, which they were using to bomb hospitals and schools in Yemen. So blatantly committing war crimes. And we were pushing back in the, in Brussels um, with U- U- British members of the European Parliament against the bad stuff the Tories were doing. And so when Brexit came up, I was like, okay, things might get even worse. There may be even fewer restrictions on what the Tories can do. And they may use that as a way to say, all right, we're going in a completely different direction and we're going to go really be really bad with human rights. And so uh, I was right. And so that for you was the point where you're like, right, um, so you were in Brussels, right? So you're in Belgium. Uh, yeah, I was, I was in Belgium. I was working for the European Centre for Democracy and Human Rights. And I had 20 followers on Twitter and I was looking at the the conversation around Brexit being led by Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson. On the other side, you had Jeremy Corbyn, David Cameron, and I could see that none of them had any clue how to deal with this. Because that's what I, I noticed. I, I've read your Wikipedia page. That, how does that feel to have your own Wikipedia page? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's fun. Who set that up? Do you know who set it up? I have no idea, but it makes Tinder interesting. <laughs> Because, like, it's obviously going on Tinder as a woman uh, has never been uh, the most straightforward and safe activity. But at least if they can Google you, that's yeah. definitely advantage. And do you find that it's like it works in your favour or is it <laughs> against it? Well, it definitely, it definitely means if they're a staunch, hard Tory Brexiteer, then uh, I get to weed out some of the... I see. Yeah. Have you, have you managed to, like, convince people... Or like change people's views on certain things. I have definitely had arguments in the first couple of uh, messages on Twitter and on Tinder uh, because of Brexit, um, and uh, some of them. I've, I've gone on the first date and they have not been on my, on my page, and we've sat through the entire debate. Uh, date. <laughs> I call debate. <laughs> I call that date. You can see the, the, yeah. the vibe, um, and uh, haven't managed to convince them. Uh, you can't really separate like the, your, your love life from your politi- from politics. Well, that, that's the thing. People say like, um, "Why can't you be friends with somebody who's on the other side of the political spectrum?" Yeah, but the stuff that we're talking about these days—it's yeah. so fundamental to who you are as a human being, whether or not you prioritize morality. I guess that's the thing because I've, I've heard that argument as well, and it's like people are allowed to have different opinions on like what toppings belong on pizza, yep. or like. <laughs> cats or dogs not on whether people deserve human rights yeah. it's that sort of thing and i've never really understood the um like the the people that sort of push back on that yeah i mean if you if you say i like star wars and she thinks that's too nerdy that's okay to say i'll oh, go she she's, got, she's got she's gotta go, go. but if i think that refugees shouldn't be sent to rwanda as a punishment that's you're just being too picky yeah 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 so because i know what is it is it hinge i don't use because so, <laughs> i know you can like set your, I've seen it like people have like posted screenshots on Twitter and other socials of their hinge profiles and like other people's hinge profiles, and you can set your like your political leanings. Yes, but as far as I'm aware, it's like you got like conservative and then there's moderate, but there's nothing like 
be like left of that? So yeah, you've, what you've got is mo- with most of them, you've got uh, conservative, moderate, and liberal. And Bumble, I think, has now taken it a step further, and they've added in left. Right. So uh, I'm curious to see what's on the other end if if they've gone one further than conservative. So I'm a theocratic fascist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take it or leave it. <laughs> Going back to your Wikipedia page, the quote that I saw, you basically saw the way that the Remain campaign was being run and you were like, the arguments that should convince people aren't convincing people because they're not being put put across properly. So you pack your stuff up in Brussels, come back to the UK. Let's go from there. What happened? Oh, it was was a slightly more complicated story than that. It was... I, I was I made... Started Twitter whilst I was in Brussels uh, and then whilst I moved to Vienna... Um, I called up Nigel Farage and his radio show a bunch of times um, and basically managed to systematically get him to admit all the lies that he told during the referendum campaign. So give, give us like, give us like the first one where you did that. Uh, the first one was me explaining what the single market is because that was the main thing that they failed to do in 2016. Uh, basically means that if you have 28 different countries regulating all their products in their own way, putting different laws on what you can put in this drink or medicine, etc., then if you wanted to sell to those 28 different countries, you'd have to market, package, and manufacture your product in a, up to, to 20 different sets of rules, which would make it much more expensive, raise prices in the shops. So because EU countries make laws together, there's only one set of rules to follow, which means you can make stuff a hell of a lot more cheaply, and that improves standard of living. Um, and yet the entire narrative in 2016 was, let's take back control of our laws, which just means you've created a barrier which adds cost. That's just what you do by definition. And I was making the point that if you've got these smaller companies, they can't afford to do that. But the larger ones, large multinationals, they can. So this Brexit that was sold as this victory for the little guy against the elite was designed to help multinationals get an advantage. Um, and so I, I got I got him to admit that. But the main, the main thing I got him to admit was on immigration. Because in 2016, he said, between now and June 23rd, June 23rd we're going to make one very simple point. When Theresa May says that it's difficult to control immigration as a member of the EU, she's wrong. It's not difficult. It's impossible. There's nothing we can do to stop unlimited numbers of people from EU countries settling in this country and enjoying the same rights and privileges as all the rest of us. That's a direct quote. And you remembered all of that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I struggle to remember the scripts I write for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm one of those annoying people that will come out of a cinema and just remember every single line. Yeah. Um, and, and so I got, and so I called them up. I was just like, right, so in 2016, you said that, but... Like, I'm reading right here, Article 7 of the EU Citizens' Rights Directive, which says, if you want to come to another EU country without a job, you need to either have a job or have sufficient resources not to become a burden on the, on the welfare state and have your own comprehensive medical insurance. So this idea that the EU lets people come here without a job, live off benefits and clog up the NHS, that's literally illegal under EU law. And his response, in theory, Femi, you're right. In theory, under European treaties, there are restrictions that can be placed. What? 2016, there's nothing we can do to stop unlimited numbers of people from EU countries settling in this country and enjoying the same rights and privileges as all the rest of us. And he's saying exact opposite. And so it was because I managed to get the main people behind Brexit to admit, we lied to you. Uh, That sort of gave me a bit of a notoriety. My Twitter page started to grow. And uh, come the end of 2017, uh, I hooked up with a group of of young people who created a, a network called Our Future Stop Brexit. I'd created an online platform, an online, well, not separate Twitter account called Our Future, Our Choice. And because mine had the cooler acronym, uh, we went with OFOC. Um, 
And so came back to the UK, um, we started doing that, managed to get a letter in The Guardian to Jeremy Corbyn basically saying, hey, stop supporting Brexit, young people don't want it. Um, and that got me on Sky News, and then we just it just sort of grew from there. So, wow, that's, that's fucking... So I'm interested, you basically got Farage to admit that this stuff wasn't, but that what he was saying wasn't true. Yeah. But yet, Leave still won. Why do you think that was? Uh, so that that was, it's is the timeline issue, because I in 2016, I was not calling up Nigel Farage. In 2016, I had 20 followers on Twitter. Uh, this I was calling up Nigel Farage in 2017, uh, so we were still uh, Brexit was still going on. It was it was those three years of absolute chaos, and um, it was on, and yet I managed to get him to admit that, and yet we didn't have the the election um, which actually sent us out of the EU 2019 until two years later. And in that election, as I've said, we'll go into PR in a second. 52% of voters chose parties that had promised a second referendum. So if all votes had counted equally in that election, we'd still be in the EU. Um, so leave one in 2016, it didn't really happen. Well, obviously, that. they'll cite the 2016 referendum that said 52% of the country wants to leave. <laughs> and yeah. it's kind of, you know, that idea of, well, this was the big thing, because I was, I was part of people's vote. I wasn't like a paid up member, but I went on the marches. I went yeah. there because for me, Brexit was a personal thing. I think like with you, it was the thing that got me involved in politics. I was 16 when it happened. Um, and for me, like personally coming from like my family, having a, a, a dad that isn't British, um, for me, it felt personal because it was like, because I think because immigration, for example, was so, um, was so big and it was like, you know, take back control of the borders, you know, all of this stuff. And for me, it felt personal because I was like, well, what, what have we done? It's like, what have I actually, like, obviously not maybe for me, but it's like, what's my dad done? My dad's lived in this country since 1998 as worked here all of his life, but worked here uh, since he's moved to this country, has never claimed a penny off the state. Um, what's the issue? And then you kind of get into the nitty gritty and you realize it's not so much European immigrants that is the issue, it's non-European. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not really anything to do with Brexit. So the, the, the immigration arguments were so, it was so nuanced and so it had so many different angles to it. So yeah, there's the element that you would have felt where it, where it felt so personal, like a personal attack on you. And I felt that too, because if the rhetoric of Nigel Farage had managed to convince the majority of British voters, maybe someone like me isn't welcome here. That was how I felt when I woke up on the 24th of June, 2016. Uh, because Nigel Farage, as you said, he his rhetoric was supposedly about um, EU migration, but it was really about brown people. If you remember it's the the, uh, the breaking point, exactly, poster. because the UK wasn't part of the EU's common asylum policy, which means that none of the people in that photograph had any rights based in the EU to come to the UK. The only way they could possibly come to the UK is if they stayed in, for example, Germany for seven years, adopted, learnt German language, were integrated in German society, and became German citizens, at which point your only criticism is their ethnic origin. See, I remember there, there's a video of you talking about that. Yeah. And you put that, you, you set up the stalls talking mm. with people. We, what was that like? Because that must be a really, um, it must be quite nerve wracking. The thing is, in terms of my confidence when it comes to discussing Brexit, the irony is I moved to Brussels at the end of 2014 and I had, um, my French language speaking schools were awesome. Like I, I got a distinction in spoken French at uni. Um, I was basically fluent and basically native and I got my law degree and I went over there thinking I was, can I say the shit? Yeah, you can, you can swear. Yeah. I went over there thinking I was the shit and 
I then got there and then everybody there can speak like five languages. Everybody has worked in Brussels and EU affairs for 30 years. Yeah, welcome to Central Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, okay, I'm officially not the shit. And I'm, I was... I would never in a million years have called myself an expert on the EU because I was working with actual experts on the EU. But you take a look at the conversation around the EU and the UK, I'm basically Einstein by comparison. And one of the argument, things that was levied to you all the time, and I remember every time when I saw you on the news, saw you on, on uh, sort of doing any, anything, was this idea that you were trying to subvert democracy mm. and that you were basically going against the will of the people. We wanted out, simple as, enough said, why do you hate this country? That was basically <laughs> kind of how it felt. Um, how did you respond to that? So there were two ways. The one, the main one I made, I made what I made was look at the DUP. The DUP represent a significant part of fifty-two percent. Uh, they voted for Brexit. They support Brexit, and they rejected Boris Johnson's deal. I mean, the the, the entire narrative and discussion around Brexit and the way people think of Brexit as a concept was wrong from day one. Ultimately, we can all agree. That if we're talking about leaving the European Union, then it's a question of international relations. What is the basis of all international relations? Treaties. So is it are we going to say that the relationship between the UK and the EU can only either be remain or uh, Boris Johnson's deal? No, it can be in that referendum. The choices were remain, which is the EU treaties, or literally any other relationship we could possibly have with the EU. And the analogy that I use is, if you signed a contract with somebody which had four words, leave the European Union, and then three years later, the person you signed that contract with added a thousand pages of extra terms and conditions and then said, hey, you already signed. That's bullshit. And that's why you ended up with major parts of the 52% saying, no, 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 we don't want this. In fact, Nigel Farage in 2019, he, he was saying on his show, um, somebody said, uh, uh, there's going to be a referendum between Boris Johnson's deal and Remain. And he said, you know what, Colin? You know what, Colin? And Remain wins that referendum and wins it every single time. Even Nigel Farage said that people would rather be in the EU than leave on the terms that we did. But inevitably, we did. We did. So let's talk about that. So the 2019 election rolls about. It's kind of the... It's, it felt like a sort of like a final battle in a way. Mm -hmm. of like, if we're going to put... It, to me... The 2019 election felt like Revenge of the Sith, where it just felt like everyone just kind of lost. And I'm not saying the Tories are the Empire or Boris Johnson's Darth Sidious, because I wouldn't give him that sort of clout. <laughs> um, not that he really needs it from me. Um, but um, that's so th there's that period. And I remember you were like, vote tactical, do all of that. A lot of people saw that as you kind of dismissing the Labour Party or sort of any sort of endorsement of, of the Labour Party. In what so I remember because you were very critical of, of Corbyn's stance when it came to Brexit. Yes. It was very much like Corbyn probably didn't support Brexit. Um, you know, why neoliberal institution and, and all of that very much. Uh, didn't, support the EU. didn't support the EU. In, sorry. Didn't support the EU. Didn't support the EU. But uh, sort of voted out in, I think, voted out in 1975 yep. for the EEC. Um, said in 2017 that the, the Labour Party was going to respect the results of the referendum. Um, did better than anticipated in 2017 for that election. Come 2019, obviously the political landscape has changed. There's a new Tory leader in town. Um, he is very much, get, kind of gets, it felt like he was kind of, when I look back on it now, it's like he was forced to accept um, sort of like uh, putting a second referendum on the ballot paper, mm -hmm. if you will, um, to try and, and win that support. And in the end, 
that was kind of part of the reason that mm. they did so badly in, in 2019. I've heard this argument so many times and it's, it's arguably the worst form of gaslighting I've ever really experienced. Why is that? Because ultimately, when it comes to Brexit, you can do Brexit in one of two ways. You either leave the EU and don't follow the rules of the EU. You take control of your laws. In which case, as I explained, you end up with having different laws on either side of the border between Dover and Calais, which adds friction and red tape and adds cost. And we're seeing the damage of that now. And as a, as a leader of the Labour Party, a party that's supposed to represent the working class people, you know that any significant damage to the economy is going to be felt the worst by the very people you're supposed to be standing for. So no leader of the Labour Party can ever offer that. And so what he went for was you leave the EU, but you keep following the rules of the EU. He, wanted, he said that you have to, uh, he said the benefits of the single market are essential to jobs and Labour will always put the jobs first. That was in his 2017 manifesto, which means we will basically stay in the single market. But that means you're following the rules of the EU, but without having any votes on those rules, which means you're ending up with less control over your laws than we did as EU members. And you're doing that in the name of people who wanted to have more control. So your only options are do a Brexit that betrays working class people, despite being the Labour Party, or do a Brexit that Brexit voters don't want at all and would actually prefer remain. So his position was stupid from day one. Now, the argument gets put that, well, he, he managed to do very well in the 2017 election. A, he didn't win. B, I voted for him in that, in that election. And I voted for him because the only options there were, like the Tories basically saying, you have, we're going to go for a hard Brexit, or Jeremy Corbyn saying, we're going to have a soft Brexit, i.e. those two options of Brexit that I, that I mentioned. And under those circumstances, many people, out of desperation to try and avoid a, 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 a hard Brexit, voted for Jeremy Corbyn. Now, after that, when, Je when, when Theresa May negotiated her deal, which was actually a harder, more damaging Brexit than the one that Jeremy Corbyn was offering, that suffered the worst parliamentary defeat in the history of the UK. Nobody wanted that. Je um, Boris Johnson said it was worse than Remain. Jacob Rees-Mogg said it was worse than the Remain. This was something that Brexit voters did not want. Now, the, the Brexit that Jeremy Corbyn was offering was even more damaging than that. But do you think the reason there was Sorry, that, even even more even more soft than that? But do you think that the reason there was that, that that resistance was just because of Theresa May as a person and kind of what she represented in within the the Tory Party as such? And it was like that's not what we want. That's not the person who can sell this product. You could argue there was an element of can you sell it? And arguably Boris Johnson's deal isn't that dissimilar to J Theresa May's. But Theresa May's did include things like the common rule book. So basically keeping the, the whole of the UK in the single market for a bit and then the customs union permanently. So basically not able to do our own trade deals pretty much ever. So it was the sort of thing that it was, it did have similarities with what Jeremy Corbyn was offering, but it was slightly harder in the sense that the England and England, Scotland and Wales would leave the single market, but stay in the customs union. So what Jeremy Corbyn was doing, what Jeremy Corbyn was offering was something that was softer than something Brexit voters hated because it was too soft. Now, if Brexit voters hated Ger Theresa May's Brexit because of what, because Theresa May was at the head of it, what do you think they'd have thought of Jeremy Corbyn's? There was no way that Jeremy Corbyn could stand on a, on a, on a Brexit that A, went exactly up in the opposite direction of what Brexit voters wanted and pissed off Remainers at the same time. It was insane. And even J Barry Gardner, the closest ally of Jeremy Corbyn, said that this was a, it would turn us into a vassal, vassal state. And he warned that Brexit voters would not be happy with the type of Brexit that Jeremy Corbyn was offering. And so the only legitimate thing that a leader at the Labour Party could do would be to offer a second referendum. 
because in, two, in 2017, just, I think it was just after the um, election, uh, he went on the Mars show and Mar pointed out that like, 80% of your members want to remain in the, want to remain in the EU. They want a second referendum. They want to, they want to stay in the single market. Why aren't you doing that? And he said, well, yes, the overwhelming majority of Labour members and supporters voted, voted to remain, but a third of them didn't. I want to win the next election. He knew that his party didn't want it. He, he knew that he was going against the wishes of left-wing people across but the country. But then obviously he's got the case where he's looking at his own party, but obviously his, part, his party and the membership will represent a very small percentage of the wider electorate. And, and he's got to appeal to the entire electorate in order in order to win. Yeah, and, and, and well, for starters, um, he has to appeal to, to uh, Labour voters in general, overwhelmingly voted Remain. He admitted that, in, 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 uh, as we said. And as I said, the Brexit that was on offer would not have helped him. Uh, let's, be, let's be clear on this. A Remain policy, or sorry, a second referendum policy, more popular than a soft Brexit policy, because everybody hated that for the reasons I've just described. Brexit voters hated it because it meant less sovereignty than we had as EU members. Remainers hated it because it meant leaving the EU and, and, and having less control because we also care about that as well. His, he was offering something that even his own right-hand men were saying, nah, nobody wants this. And I mean... I think the best way of putting it is, if I was in his position, what I would have done on day one after the second after the referendum in 2016 would be to say, all right, the majority has voted for Brexit. But during this referendum campaign, the Leave campaign has offered several different options as to what Brexit would be. Some of them said we could be like Norway. Some of them said we could just stay in the customs union. Some of them said we'll have a basic free trade deal like Canada. Some of them wanted no deal at all. So what we're going to do is, I think we should have town halls in every constituency across the UK. Each MP will discuss with his constituents and find out what they want in terms of their relationship with the EU. Then each MP will come back to Parliament and they will vote on whatever deal they want to negotiate for. We will then negotiate for that. And whatever deal gets, gets, comes out of that, we then put it against Remain in a referendum. That is the most democratic way of doing Brexit imaginable. Otherwise, you end up with a Brexit that most Brexit voters don't want. And then what, what happens? Let's say that happens, right? You, that idea happens. Then you get your vote. You put it back to a second referendum and people go, no, I don't want that. Do you go back again? If, 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 they, vote to, if they vote to remain, that means that, that despite wanting... Well, so, so you give them that option. You give them the, this is the deal option. So how many options are going to be on this ballot page? You'd have to, you'd have, to have two. Just two? Yeah. And because, because, I mean... For starters, the notion of putting no deal in the ballot paper is insane because the half of the, almost 95% of the Leave campaign was, we'll get an amazing deal. So once you've got your deal, you have to put that against Remain. That is the logical thing to do. Let's kind of move on from Brexit, mm. which I feel like a lot of people wanted to do. I feel like it was the reason a lot of people couldn't speak to members of their family for Brexit. There is no moving on from Brexit until it's reversed because we're seeing it, on, it, we're the effects of it this. every single day. So how is Brexit affecting our day-to-day? So in terms of the day-to-day, -day, it's in, it's increasing costs. Now, yes, obviously that's being masked to a certain extent by COVID, by Ukraine, but we know that um, the uh, Small Business Federation, which represents the small businesses across the UK, they say that um, one in, uh, sorry, they say that uh, half of their businesses, sorry, 70% 70, 70 of their businesses have had difficulty selling to the EU. 25% um, of their businesses have stopped selling altogether. 
Um, and the British Chamber of Commerce says that one in five export businesses have stopped selling to the EU altogether. Um, and that is because um, the extra red tape, the extra bureaucracy of having different laws to the place where you're selling your products is adding costs and, and simply pricing many businesses out of that market. And when you have lots of businesses leaving the market, other ones raise their price, other ones capitalize, um, there's less competition. And that's and it makes situations like COVID in Ukraine even worse. Um, you've also got the issues of um, the lack of staff because we've seen uh, that in the supply chains. We've seen that we've had issues of workers who left the UK during COVID and didn't come back because of Brexit. Um, and then you've got the issue of the NHS. The NHS, the Nuffield Trust, they've said that Brexit is damaging the NHS. And that's one of the things that we predicted all along. In fact, every single medical organization in the UK said that Brexit would damage the NHS. And here we are in terms of making medicines more expensive, harder to get, reduction in, in, in the numbers of nurses and doctors coming over from the EU. All of these things are affecting our day-to-day. -day. Um, not to mention the the... the options that we have, especially as young people, to work in 31 countries across Europe. That's essentially gone unless you're rich. You've, you've said all of that. Why do you think that neither of the two main political parties in this country want to acknowledge the effect that Brexit is having on this country? Because it all seems to be the focus is on COVID, Ukraine, cost of living. Nobody seems to want to mention Brexit. It's like a, it's a bad word. You can't say it without it all kicking off? There are two There are two sides to that. One, um, it's fear of what the Tories will do if Keir Starmer suddenly starts being seen to attack Brexit because the Tories would love to fight an election to, to an extent on being the people that believe in Britain, being the people that believe in Brexit. Um, and so he's scared. I think that fear is wrong because there are definitely ways you can do it. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but there's also the acknowledgement, and this goes not just for the politicians, but also for than people in the media, because the moment they accept just how damaging Brexit is, and the democracy argument that I mentioned, that you have not got a majority in favor of this Brexit, and you never did, because Boris Johnson's deal was never put to the people, you then realize that we've been led by people for seven years who failed us on a historical level. So there's that, what if they realize what we've done? And there's, what if the Tories attack us for this? As for the Tories attacking Labour for it, um, that is an issue of, it's, anytime I say that Keir Starmer needs to be better on Brexit, people say, well, he can't just come out and say that we should rejoin the EU because the Tories will kill him for it. He doesn't have to. All, any leader... I think it's not just the Tories, it's the, it's the media, it's what the public yeah. will say, because he he was seen as one of the, the key pushers for a second referendum as Brexit mm. secretary. Um, and so obviously, if, you know, there's always that kind of thought in the back of people's heads who are politically aware... And they're like, well, you know, he might want to do that. And he's very keen to sort of distance himself from, well, I mean, from those sort of allegations. Given that, like, what is it, two-thirds, the recent poll said that two-thirds of the, of the UK are in favour of having a, a referendum on rejoining the EU. 56% think that, that it's a mistake. And the recent poll said there was it 37% of Leave voters versus 22% think Brexit has failed. The public are pretty much where they need to be already. But let's not, let's not kid ourselves that you know, Brexit was where the things started going, well, obviously that's where stuff, things started going wrong, but it's ha it happened way before, way before that, you think sort of 2010, for example, where the Tories come in to yeah. implement austerity measures, which crippled this country between 2010 to 2015. 
it's estimated that 50,000 people lost their lives yep. as a result of the measures. Some figures say even 300,000. Yep. So it goes, be, it's kind of beyond Brexit. It's so systemic that Brexit is almost seen like, um, you know, I'm trying to think, it's like, you know, when people get like the, um, uh, you know, like the glazing gun on Bake Off and they glaze their banoffee pie that's completely fall, fallen apart and they go, oh, this looks okay. It, it, it's beyond, it's beyond that. I need to think of another analogy to give. <laughs> we're gonna redo that bit <laughs> it's like the idea of you know if you've um if you've been cleaning your room all right and it's like yeah i've cleaned it but you know all the shit that you've that you've cleaned is actually in your cupboard you know you haven't actually addressed the the, the stuff's there you haven't re just, just redistributed that you haven't put it away you just put it to the side and hope that no one will open that door because it's all going to come back out and that's kind of how i see a lot of the issues that are going on. Oh, there's definitely a large part, but it is all part of the same story. I mean, often when I speak to people who voted Remain and they come from an area where everybody they, everybody they know voted Remain, um, London would be a key example, I'll say, all right, imagine you are 50 years old, you live in Sunderland. When you were 11, your dad lost his job because Margaret Thatcher closed the shipyards and the mines. And you've watched your area get nothing from government forever. You've watched London get more investment every year, Millennium Dome, London Eye, underground tube system, which never you've never seen anything like that in Hull. Um, and you voted Labour all your, all your life because you've hated the Thatcher and the, the Tories and what they what they did to your, your town. And you never vote Tories. And so therefore the Tories know they're never going to win your vote. Labour knows they're always going to win your vote. So there's no actual political incentive to do anything for you. And so politics very much has left you behind. And then you get to um, 2016 and you've just been through six or so years of austerity and the person telling you to vote for status quo is David Cameron, the same person who's put you and your family through six years of austerity. Under those circumstances, take away my, my, my law degree and my EU experience, I'm voting leave every single goddamn time. So austerity and Brexit are fundamentally linked because it is in that context that people desperately needed change. And they were told that, that Brexit was a way to do that. And Brexit's always seen as a protest vote. Uh, that's what that's kind of like the, the what the research has suggested. I know like Matt Goodwin with a lot of the research that he's done with Brexit, he's kind of linked. The, he's mentioned what you said about this idea about left behind voters, disillusion because of deindustrialization and you know watching the South yeah. grow yeah. and um, basically fuck all going on in the and north. And I spoke to those people because I was I was out in the streets in 2016 before the referendum, and I spoke to at least two couples who came up to me once I was on the street and they said um, they're voting Brexit to stick it to Cameron. And, I, and I, I fully get that because if you're not an expert in EU law, which let's be clear, people on both sides, most not expert. As I said, I remember I told you how I did not consider myself to be an expert in EU law at all. Most people, definitely not experts in EU law, remain or leave. And under those circumstances, you vote leave under those, if you want to um, give Cameron a kicking. And so- That's actually a question I want to ask you, sorry. Um, sorry to interrupt. Um, but this is a question we asked another guest. Who do you think the worst leader has been for the last 20 years, we'll say, 20 years? Uh, Cameron. Cameron. Yeah. Why? Uh, because the UK is the well, right now I think it's the fourth most financially unequal country in Europe. There was there was a way of handling the post financial crash era in a way that didn't do the damage that he did to it. And not only did he do that damage, he then let the tiger out of the cage by opening the door to Boris Johnson. And he put Brexit on the agenda as a way to save his votes from UKIP that were starting to eat away at his vote share. 
And that then led to everything. So he did, he's not just responsible for austerity, he's responsible for everything that followed because he basically opened that gate and then walked away. And it's almost, yeah, that's the thing. He has sort of walked away. There's no, um, no, no, that's the thing. He's walked away and people have kind of almost forgotten about him. Mm. I think it's of how terrible his trust was. Mm. It's almost like, you know, David Cameron is kind of, he must be fucking ecstatic these kind of been able to go away, write a book, make a shit ton of money, um, working in the city, doing speeches, and he's um, he's kind of walked away scot free. So your your big thing at the moment now is PR, proportional representation. Why? Uh, because as it currently stands, we're not a democracy. To call the UK a democracy is an offence to the word democracy. Um, if you look at every election that we've had, I think since the Second World War, for starters. The winning party almost never gets a majority of the seats, a majority of the votes in, in across the country, but they always get a majority of the seats in parliament, which means they have majority control, which means they can pass any law they like without having to even talk to the other parties, you know, the parties that the majority voted for, which means that the majority of votes in the UK never have any meaning at all. And if most votes are meaningless, you can't call that a democracy. And it's worse than that. It's that if you look at every single election we've had since the Second World War, the majority of votes have gone to parties to the left of the Conservative Party. So that we're talking Labour, SNP, Lib Dems, Greens. They've had 50% plus of the vote in every single election apart from, I think, three elections. Um, and yet the Tories have been in power for 47 of the last 77 years. So we consistently get governments that are more right-wing than the people themselves. And so when you see these right-wing agendas being pushed by governments as if they represent the people, they don't. The reason why that's allowed to happen is that under First Past the Post, it's done by constituencies, so your town, for example, and whichever party, whichever candidate for a party comes first, becomes the MP for that constituency. So if, the, if theoretically the Tory candidate gets 40% of the vote and the Labour candidate gets 30% of the vote and the Green candidate gets 30% of the vote, then even though the majority of people in that, in that constituency, in that town, want relatively left-wing policies, they will be run by a Tory. Theoretically, if that happens in every single constituency across the UK, 100% of MPs are Tories, even though 60% 60 of the people want left-wing policies. We're not a democracy. So proportional representation is a system of voting whereby the seats in Parliament match the votes of the people. Because currently under the first-past-the-post system that we have now, basically it's done by constituencies or towns. So whichever MP comes first in each constituency becomes the MP for that town, even if they only get a minority of the votes. You end up with most votes essentially being wasted. Yeah. So you want to bring in PR. What system are you advocating for? So I don't think you should do straight PR, i.e. just add up all the votes across the country and then allocate them to each party. I think you have to have some element of regional PR. So for example, you'd say um, London gets 15 MPs and then you divide, up the, you divide up the vote and allocate to each party based on that. Or West Midland gets 10 MPs, something like that. So you want like a regional list system? Yes. Well, obviously the issue with that is where basically the, can, uh, where basically the party could put forward a load of candidates. And it's like, well, you know, I want to vote for this party, but I don't want so and so to be to be the MP of that uh, to be the, the, that. And that'll be and that'll be part and that'll be part of it. If you if that party puts forward rubbish candidates or candidates that are really problematic and put people off, they won't get the votes. But obviously, one of the arguments for first past the post is that it keeps out extremist parties. So the obvious example in the last sort of twenty years has been UKIP in two thousand and fifteen, won three million votes, fifteen percent of the vote share, only got one MP, Douglas Carswell, who used to be a Tory. So how in that circumstance, let's say we have a PR system 
and a, load, a big extremist party get in? How are we um, how are we dealing with that? That's democracy. I mean, uh, one, if 15% of our population votes UKIP, then 15% of our, of our MPs should be UKIP. That's, we shouldn't just hide, we shouldn't use a broken electoral system to hide who we are as a country, because that's not democratic. Second of all, it is because of that feeling of your votes don't count, which they don't under our current system, that people ended up feeling the need to take back control. That narrative was so useful in 2016 because people knew our voting system doesn't allow us to express ourselves. And so you had a lot of people going towards the extremes. Um, third of all, there is also the issue of, I don't want to have to fight these people in back alley Facebook groups. I would much rather fight these people in parliament where you can actually all address them. Whereas uh, what we saw, what we've seen a lot recently is these siloed conversations. They'll have these conversations on Facebook groups or on um, these chat rooms or on GB News or places where nobody really is paying attention. And so they'll just create these in little echo chambers and they'll get more and more extreme. All that happens because those people aren't made to answer, answer questions in public. For example, if UKIP had for the last... 20 years, been in Parliament, putting forward their arguments for leaving the EU, they would have been publicly destroyed long before we got to 2016 because they'd have to say, what sort of deal they want? How would that affect trade? They would have to answer all these questions, whereas instead, they threw it on, onto the table in 2016, got to present a, a, a wishy-washy, we'll leave, we'll sort it out, and then here we are. There's also the other issue of the argument that you said about how our first-past-the-post system keeps extremists out of parliament. Woo! Okay, so, uh, have you seen parliament recently? The whole sending I've, refugees... I've, I've had a glance. <laughs> I've had a glance or two over the last, over the last few years, yeah. Uh, the United Nations said that they, the UK government is trying to normalise white supremacy. That's because they put out a, a race report that, A, um, uh, said it recognized that black people have to send black people and people from ethnic minorities have to send roughly 70 to 90 percent more job, job applications when they're applying for a job in order to get a call back but it might just be because the employer assumes that people from those backgrounds are of a lower class so they just use classism to disguise racism it also said that we need to start talking about um slavery in terms of the uh, how it allowed Africans to culturally transform themselves into Brits, as if slavery was basically Erasmus with the chains. <laughs> this is the government we're talking about, sending refugees to Rwanda, banning protests, uh, banning strikes. FB, if, FB, if, if, the, if the role of this voting system is to keep extremists out of government, it's fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, I can't argue with that. <laughs> it's, I guess that's... What's the film where the um, the population, like, there's no more births? And Children of Men. Yeah. And basically the director, people asked the director, how did you how did you write this? And he said, I just looked at... It was when he, wrote, he published... It, that film was uh, produced in what, 2004, 2005? <clears throat> around 2006, around the mid-2000s. Mid and he basically said, I'm looking at the country now and where I think it will go in 20 years. And well... If you look at the uh, the rhetoric that they have around immigrants, so I'd say we're pretty close. People look at proportional representation, so a system where the MPs in Parliament reflect the vote share that those parties get across the country, and they say, but we haven't done this. It results in coalition governments of parties having to work together. A, that's what they should do. The idea that one party should be able to do whatever they want without having to even consult the other parties, that's not democracy, that's dictatorship. Second of all, we're the odd man out in Europe. 
Like, there's only one other country that uses first-past-the-post in any form in its government, and that is Belarus, often referred to as Europe's last dictatorship. That's the company we're keeping right now. The idea that we're, oh, it would be crazy to go for proportional representation or some other system. No, we're the odd ones out. <laughs> I didn't actually leave the Labour Party. I got kicked out. Um, when did you get kicked, wait, sorry, when did you get kicked out? Uh, so I joined the Labour Party at the end of December 2019. Um, I think I got my membership card in January 2020. And I was kicked out on the... Eight hours after lockdown was called. So 21st, I think, 20, 23rd of, of What was uh, the reason March? that they gave for kicking you out? So after I joined the Labour Party, having just spent two years being completely non-partisan and basically working with any party that wanted to stop Brexit, uh, I put out a tweet basically saying, hey, anybody from the Lib Dems and Greens that's disappointed in me for joining the Labour Party, just know that my main objective is to get Labour to commit to proportional representation and do an electoral pact on that basis so that all votes for all parties would count equally. So your votes would actually matter. So me joining the Labour Party is actually the single best thing I could possibly do for your parties. And the letter that I got then said, you join the Labour Party to help other, other parties? You're not loyal, bye. Um, which means that Labour was so tribal that even acknowledging that something they do could mutually beneficially help another party, But the Labour, out. The Labour Party at their last conference voted to put PR on their on their ballot paper I know, right? but obviously starmer has come out recently and said yeah that's not gonna happen but then he's also promised votes for 16 votes 16 and 17 year olds and also um what's it votes for eu nationals which i think is a good thing but whether uh that gets rode back on is probably likely to happen um so do you think you could probably get back in at this rate or is there like I, a? I, I honestly don't know because when i joined labor party it was still under corbyn's leadership and so i can understand why people close to him don't like me um but i then tried again in the summer when Starmer was that was there and they still wouldn't let me in so and when i when i look at how the leadership acts towards the things that i think need to happen so proportional representation for example that makes sense do you feel like you were unfairly discriminated against were you silent or were you silent? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. We were gonna be we we're gonna be serious. Okay. Sorry, it's not that funny, bro. <laughs> Sorry. You just turned it into an Oprah interview. Okay. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> so do you feel like you were unfairly discriminated against? I feel like I was kicked out because of what I wanted to say. They but that's something that's been interesting because the Labour Party at the moment, uh, Channel 4 released something where they said that um, there are a group of black MPs that um, don't feel that the recommendations in the Ford report, particularly with um, sort of prioritising and treating race, all forms of racism equally, um, is being uh, enforced. Those MPs don't want to go public because of fear of losing the whip. It almost sounds like you were kicked out from the sound, quite, I'd say unfairly. Um, for um, so that, that that at least to me looks like that you you are part of part of the uh, part, not when I say part of this issue, but there is clearly. Well, I'm I'm looking at a, a case uh, a case in front of me right now that this is that this is happening. So, I think that is was I unfairly kicked out of the Labour Party? Yes, because even the arguments they use for why I should leave, I I joined the Labour Party to help opposition parties. That's not what I said. Um, uh, and the idea of kicking me out for do for supporting a policy that, as we just saw, the majority of Labour members also support, again, objectively unfair. As for the issue of did race play a part, that, without being part of those discussions, I, I cannot know. As for 
is Keir Starmer doing the right things? Is Keir Starmer's Labour Party as a whole doing the right things on race? I have to say no. The way they've handled um, the Black Lives Matter movement has not been good. Have they stood up for the issues of racism? No, because they're too scared of, of Tories and they're too scared of the right-wing press. And so they, and despite all the facts that I mentioned about how if, you're, if you've got an ethnic minority sounding name, you have some more, more job applications to get a call back when you're applying for, for work, those sorts of issues, they have not taken a stand in order to fix those things. So if I were to guess one way or the other, I'd guess probably um, that those problems did not help in my case. We don't have to include this next bit, but um, but do you not think that there is obviously like, oh, well, we're not going to do this because of fears what other people will say, but there's also that element of your own person saying, I don't want to talk about this. It's a personal choice that you make. Do you perhaps think that there that there is that reluctance from the leadership to address those sorts of issues? Not because because of who they are as people, not because of fears of what other people will say. Uh, are we talking about... Um... I'm saying, do you think Starmer's reluctance to kind of, as, with what you've just mentioned, do you think that's because of fears of what the electorates and what the Tories will say or because of who he is as a person? My views on Starmer as a person is he is a political animal. Um, as for what he actually believes, I think much like Boris Johnson, I think that's almost irrelevant um, because I've met him twice and on both cases he disappointed me. Once was at UCL when I was explaining to him that, look, you're supporting a version of Brexit that most Brexit voters don't want. What are you doing? And he just completely told the party line. But the second time was during the tactical vote campaign. And I was going around the country to different constituencies and I was explaining to him, I was explaining to people, right, in here, in this constituency, you vote Labour, in this constituency, you vote Lib Dem, etc. That's the basis of tactical voting. And uh, I just wanted to get a quick video with him basically saying, all right, in this constituency, Labour is most likely to win. So here, you need to vote Labour. Uh, and he started with, um, because Labour is the only party offering a second referendum. Like, Dude, what? No, <laughs> that's the whole point. Uh, and his response was, um, uh, oh, sorry, we're too tribal. Um, now, that could be a joke that's self-aware, but the fact that he's still going down that line of um, no, to, no to PR suggests that he was just saying, no, this is who we are. Um, and so I think he will, and we've seen what happened with the pledges, that he's dropped all, all of his pledges. He will do whatever it takes to do what he thinks will achieve power for himself, for labor, probably himself. And so I do not trust him as an individual. However, we do need to realize that we live in a two-party system. So as far as moving forward, yes, Labour has to win and we have to make sure that that does happen. But if he doesn't completely switch a 180 as soon as he's in power and become everything we need to be, he's got to go. But is that likely to happen? Yes, because he's a political animal. And if we can create an environment where it becomes politically toxic for him not to do the things we need, then he'll change. How do you look after your mental health? Uh, therapy was a major one because I got to a place whereby my, my mental health was at a life-threatening place twice in the last uh, three years or so um, because I'd I quit my job in Vienna. I'd um, had no social life. Uh, I was seeing somebody in Vienna. In fact, the last thing I did before I got into my car was kiss her goodbye and that ended. Um, I had barely any family life. Um, and I was just on the road 24 seven, um, just doing everything I could to stop Brexit. And I was getting death threats all the time, um, constant abuse all the time. 
and and because I knew that the entire medical community was saying that Brexit would damage the NHS, I thought, all right, we've got thousands of lives on one side and my one life here, it's not a contest. I have to keep going, death threats be damned. Um, and so I didn't really care about my life at all um, through that entire period. And so figuring out how to actually focus on my life afterwards uh, has required therapy. And that's what I'm doing now. And has it been working? I think it has. Um, uh, just reminding myself that keeping myself happy is a goal in and of itself. It's not just something that I do so I can keep doing the work that needs to be done. But with like all the trolls and all those sort of like the hate comments, you mentioned the death threats, obviously. It, how do you how do you deal with that aspect? Because I don't I don't see you. Do you block people? Like what what do you, what, what do you do? Uh, unless they um, pose a threat to my physical person or the or my or my friends or family, uh, I tend not to block unless they've got blue ticks. But we, that's another story. Um, yeah, I think we've got time for blue ticks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I'm kind of numb to it. Um, there's a line from Stargate um, which where Teal says. Uh, to resist the influence of, of others, knowledge of oneself is most important. I know who I am. I know why I do this. I know that I'm not doing it for clout. I'm not doing it for fame. I'm not doing it for money. Because um, I don't fucking have any. Um, uh, I'm doing this because, well, I got into this because of human rights. Are you hopeful for the future? I am. Um, why? Because, as I said before, the majority of people in the country vote more progressive than the governments we're seeing. So that... There is that overwhelming weight towards the right direction in the voter in the voters, and because we've seen major change within the Labour Party in terms of they voted for changing the voting system to where to one where all votes count equally, that potential for well the Tories to leave, which is most likely, um, and then for there to be some major major change in how the system operates, huge. Not to mention our generations, mine, millennial, yours, Gen Z. We are not like the ones before us. I mean, there was a recent thing in the Financial Times which showed that the research shows that uh, if you are boomer, sound generation, even Gen X, then when you were 35, you were five points less conservative than the national average. But by 60, you were five points more conservative. Yet with Gen Zs and yet with millennials, when they reach 35, they are 15 points less conservative than the national average. So we are actually bucking the trend. So we are going to see better politics moving forward. And if we do get PR, we will also start to be nicer to each other. So under under the first past the post system, only one party can win and they take all the power, which means that anybody with an even slightly different point of view to yours is an existential threat. Whereas under a proportional system, it's designed to make us all work together. Fermi, before you go, thank you, honestly, thank you for coming on, mate. This is this is weird because I remember, like, I'm, I've got no shame in saying this, when I was first starting out producing, I watch, I've been watching your content since I was 16. So this is really <laughs> weird for me, six years on basically, to be sat, <laughs> sat opposite you talking to you like this. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Um, is there anything, uh, yeah, and you were also like with the stuff that you've been putting together i mean i've i've always thought that it was great there are times where i've been like okay but, there's been, <laughs> but i think that's the case with everyone yeah um i mean that, that, but that that's kind of the point yeah we want to be able to have different disagreements and have that be okay otherwise yeah. any like i said we shouldn't be in a situation where anybody with an even slightly different point of view to yours is an existential threat we should be able to unless they don't believe in human rights of course demi thank you so much for coming on and to all of you you listening um thank you so much for the support that, you, that you've been showing this podcast i really appreciate it um yeah, we will see you for the next uh, for the next episode. Thank you very much. See you.